0: Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker's Compass Podcast, a show where we talk about movies and more movies. I'm D-Man, joined by CP, and for anybody that is only listening today, CP, you are dressed accordingly. You look like you're ready for a, uh, you know, Egyptian adventure.
1: If you mean, in fact, I'm dressed like Indiana Jones, then you are correct.
0: (laughs) That's exactly what I meant. I guess I don't see a whip, but you do have the fedora and your colors are on point. So well done.
1: I try you know we we're trying to bring some effort to the podcast. So
0: Pretty exciting because apparently uh, Indiana Jones dropped this week and you had the chance to see it. I have not. So we're going to talk a little bit about that later in the show. And that's pretty exciting because it's been, you know, about a decade, I think, since Indiana Jones, you know, last had a new adventure. Mm -hmm. And we'll hear how that went. But before we jump into any of those discussions, CP, I just wanted to say to everybody, I hope you had a fantastic 4th of July. Hope everybody got to enjoy some good food, some fireworks, and some of those great movies we discussed last week. Very true. Yeah, Ivor actually said thanks, guys, to our 4th of July post. And CP, I was just going to ask you, did you do anything fun?
1: Um, You know, I watched The Patriot and I grilled. Watched some fireworks. That's, that's pretty much what you do on 4th of July.
0: Yep, barbecue, fireworks, and I'm not going to lie, I did a late night. I put on Jaws. That was the one. <laughs> I love Jaws. That's just such a good movie. So yeah, 4th of July was a blast, literally and figuratively, and I uh, can't wait till next year. So on Twitter, Eric Drucker actually chimed in and said, at Film Comp Podcast. And then he tagged you and me individually. He said, what are you guys watching today? Happy 4th. And and that was in reference to Independence Day, which Drucker, you're ahead of the game here. You know where we're going with this show and I (laughs) love you for it. So thank you so much. He said, uh, or he posted a GIF of Independence Day. We did end up getting into a little bit of a conversation there about some of the 4th of July movies and Drucker, I hope you enjoyed that conversation on last week's episode. Now, CP, he did bring up something very, very important. That we forgot to mention, and that is uh Team America. <laughs> we not did as not patriotic a movie on. as there is. Yeah. I can't believe we left that one off. Uh that's actually pretty crazy when we think about it. I mean, I think I put on there what's the Captain America? No, I'm blanking on the female baseball movie.
1: Oh, uh, a league of their own.
0: A League of Their Own, yeah. I'm like, that made the list, but Team America didn't. I I think (laughs) Drucker made a very good point there. And he also did have a comment related to your having viewed Indiana Jones, which I'm not going to get into that yet. Maybe we'll bring it up when we talk about it. But Drucker, (laughs) I don't know if you've seen that movie, but if you have, we'd love to hear your opinion, because I obviously still have to see it and I probably will be going. So before we move into our topics this week, CP, I did want to just say that we have joined threads.
1: (laughs) Ooh.
0: so we are now on another social media channel and you can find us there at film Comp podcast just like instagram
1: so so and d-man question have we actually posted anything on threads or are we just
0: there we're there so we <laughs> haven't we haven't really journeyed out yet into the threads verse. So I don't know. I, what are your thoughts on threads so far? I mean, it's very uh, limited. It's so only been out about a week.
1: It's so we- well, I think probably the most beneficial component of Twitter I always found was like, you know, kind of like what's trending. Yeah. And the without, trending tab. without that threads feels very insulated. Like, it feels like it's only about the people within my network. It doesn't give me the sense of like, this is what's going on in the whole world, which was kind of what always made Twitter a useful social media platform.
0: Yeah, I think Twitter was known for uh, being the place to go to for breaking news because it would obviously shoot to the top of the trending charts. Mm -hmm. Uh, you could literally campaign for certain things and get hashtags or phrases Mm -hmm. or words to trend. But obviously a lot of people's journey on Twitter would start on the trending page because that's kind of like what's happening right now. What are the conversations? So yeah, without that. And then I don't know if you noticed, but so far in my experience, and this is only looking at other people's posts, it looked to me that hashtags themselves were not working or they were not clickable Yeah, they might index, but you can't click through.
1: Yeah, which also was weird because, again, what's great is if there's a conversation going on in the Twitterverse... You can join it by following the hashtags.
0: Yeah, so. so it felt a little a little bare bones there. I don't know. That was kind of strange. Yeah, and I, I noticed agree. too, this was just me. I, they had a thing in the settings. This is on my personal account now, but where you could set it to show in your main feed the people that you follow. Because apparently if you don't change that setting, it just kind of pre-populates with you know, whatever some of the most popular threads are. I wasn't really feeling it. Because it was a lot of things that I didn't really care about. And I was kind of like, that's what Twitter does is indexes all that. And then you click through to what you're interested about. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know how I felt about that. But then again, this app is only a week old. I mean, Meta has been around in social for a long time. So I know they know how to do things like hashtags and what have you. Yeah. so. I suspect we'll start to see some of those things pop up sooner rather than later. So audience, if you're on
1: threads, let us know what your experience is. And have you found anything that you really like about it? Because so far, I think for D-Man and I, we're still kind of feeling it out and nothing has blown us away. So if you found something that you really like or particular application for it that you think is great, let us
0: know. Awesome. Well, CP, I'll throw it over to you. Do you have any shout outs on this episode? Uh, I have zero shout outs. All right. Well, then uh that means we are going to get into our first topic this week, which is actually a movie. So, we both hit the theater this week and we went to go see Angel Studios The Sound of Freedom starring Jim Caviezel there and too. dealing with some pretty tough subject matter in the uh, you know, basically the child sex trade. So, yeah. now
1: uh yeah, not a happy fun movie if you want to go see a happy fun movie.
0: Yeah, so it's actually a movie that is Interesting for a lot of reasons, but first of all, I just wanted to get your opinion. What did you think of the film? I mean, it's a heavy movie. It's dealing with a very heavy subject.
1: Um, I mean, it was made for a much lower budget than most things that we see out in theaters these days. So that was kind of different. I don't know. Those are my immediate takeaways. But it's you know, a heavy movie.
0: It's not fun. I was going to say, I think, well, they have a couple fun characters they do embed throughout the story, yeah. which is good. That's that's really good. because. But it's not a little movie little...
1: that you want to, if you want to feel good about the world, you don't go
0: see The Sound of Freedom.
1: If you want to feel really bad about the world, go see The Sound of Freedom.
0: I mean, yeah, it has a bleak view of the current state of things. But I will say, having seen it, it reminded me in structure a lot of Taken. Mm. So, which if you remember, Liam Neeson, Taken, probably... What are we looking at? Maybe like 15 years ago now. Yep. They've had a couple sequels since then. Yep. But I mean, the story structure is that his daughter, while vacationing in Europe, uh, is abducted into the sex trade. And here she's an adult and these are kids, but roughly very kind similar. Of the same
1: type of thing, going after him, hunting down bad guys.
0: No, I will say, taken, uh, Liam Neeson's character is, I mean, objectively, he's a fictional character versus what in this case is, I think his name is, what is it? Tim, Timoteo? Yeah. Yeah. He is a based on a real, real person.
1: Yeah, real federal agent.
0: <laughs> right. So they probably only have so much liberty on how badass they can make him without going yeah. like full Rambo. But, yeah. you know, Taken is a fictional character. And I will say Liam Neeson's character is absolutely badass. And I feel like that movie obviously has much more sensationalized action sequences and fight scenes versus here. It feels like it's a little bit more uh, down to earth or, you know, what closer to probably what actually happened where yeah. you don't have like Ness. Necessarily like these massive fight scenes and chases through European cities and, you know, all that. So, but on the flip side, I felt like the movie does do a good job of introducing a, uh, you know, kind of a squad of characters that are going to go on this mission. And they definitely based off the uh, opening scene, have you invested in them successfully going and, and finding these kids who were abducted mm-hmm. so and i feel like they do a fairly good job of keeping the, the pace of the movie moving and never dwelling quite too long on anything too grotesque even a lot of the stuff is a little bit more uh alluded to than always you know shown thank god did. so for yeah. good reason so but one of the things you know the sound of freedom if you see the film you'll know why it's called that i won't spoil it for you and i won't spoil the end it's a movie that it's weird because when I left I found myself talking more about the subject matter than the film itself yeah if that makes sense yeah so obviously at the end of the film the movie puts up some stats on you know the current what the slave trade looks like in like 2020. 2020- I guess it could go, it should be updated to today, 2023, but I think this movie is like five years old. So I'm not sure at what point these statistics were from, but probably within the last five years. Mm -hmm. And then it does have, if you say for a post-credits kind of a little message from Jim Caviezel, he kind of makes a pitch at the end of the movie about why the subject matter of this film is important. And he makes a very good point that even, you know, here on this podcast, you know, talking about the child sex trade is something that it's like, yeah, I mean, I don't really want to talk about it, you know, yeah. it's a, uh, it's ugly, it's the ugly side of humanity, you know, we don't yeah. necessarily want to bring that up at the dinner table or even on our podcast. So his pitch at the end of the movie was, hey, you know, let's take more of an activist stance here and say that the story itself will be the stand in for that conversation and just share the story, share mm-hmm. it on your social media, tell people to see the movie, but you don't have to talk about the subject matter. And to that end, if people see the movie, hopefully we can raise enough awareness to hopefully enact some sort of change yep. in the future. So I thought it was interesting because I, I really did get that vibe leaving the movie where afterwards I was like, wow, I can't believe all this crap happens. Like you know, you're like, literally, we were driving home and, and above there's a train with freight and you're like, who knows who's in there? You know, mm-hmm. you don't know. Like, that's what's yeah. crazy about this movie is it opens your eyes to like, wow, this stuff is happening and it's happening around you. Yeah. And so I found that, hey, how do I say it? I think when I look at this movie, if you were to take the subject matter, meaning child abduction, tri- you know, slavery, all of that, and you were to just swap it out with something like, say, drugs and <laughs> instead of. Yeah. You know, going yeah. to rescue a kid, they're going to take down a drug dealer. Would this movie be as powerful? And I think no. I uh, think the movie hinges on that. So go agree. ahead.
1: Well, I think we've seen lots of movies
0: about federal
1: agents busting drug dealers and drug cartels, right? You know, yeah, bad traffics, boys. bad boys, right? We we watch these movies. Miami Vice. They're they're financially successful in the box office. But because they're successful in the box office and we've seen them so many times, the message is not as powerful. This movie is and probably part of the reason why it took five years to get distribution is there are probably a lot of studio execs that are like, I don't want to touch that. Like who's who's honestly in good conscience going to want to go see a movie about kids being sold into slavery. Mm -hmm. No, thanks. That's not a fun, like, you know, that's not a fun summer blockbuster, but because of that, And because they went there and did manage to end the film in a positive note, which I think is the other reason why everybody could sit through this film. There was this was a successful story in the end. But because of that, you know, we just haven't seen it as much. So seeing it makes the message more powerful, which is probably why the social action campaign is built on, hey, go get other people to see this movie. And then we're all on the same page and we understand what's going on.
0: Yeah. And I feel like it's a movie that literally it's, it's approaching that level. So like, it wasn't on my radar when I went to go see it. I mean, I, I'd heard the, you know, the title the sound of freedom, but I didn't know what it was about. Right. Mm-hmm. And my wife, Steph wanted to go see it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like I'm down, you know, there's tons of movies I want to go see that I'm like, she's probably never heard of. Let's uh, <laughs> let's do it. So yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm like, all right, let's go. So we go and. You know, it's funny because it, it does feel like a movie that's approaching that level of like social consciousness. I'm starting to see it pop up in places like Fox News and uh, some social media feeds where it's kind of like, you know, if you don't go see it, people are kind of like, oh, you're kind of an asshole, you know, <laughs> like you should just because like, right? Like it's yeah. it's almost like yeah, yeah, yeah. that uh, either or meaning like if you go see it, you're a hero. But if you don't, apparently you like support <laughs> Flavor, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, so it's like approaching that sort of zeitgeist in our in our cultural discourse right now, where it's kind of like they're, we're, we're not shaming people to go see it, but it's kind of like, you probably should.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And I don't know, I was gonna ask you, like, do you think that's kind of a good activist plan because i feel like uh, uh obviously when you just read people's reviews and you read you go to rotten tomatoes anywhere i mean the commentary about the movie is overwhelmingly positive meaning i don't get the sense that anybody's shaming anybody they're just like it's so good you should go see it it's on social media where you start to get these influencers that you know start pushing that narrative you think yeah. that's the right way to go i don't know
1: I mean, it's tough to say. I think part of it is, I mean, we've seen, this is not the first film that we've seen kind of embedded with a social action campaign, right? In in 2004, Participant Media was launched and every film of theirs has a activist, a social activism component to it. The difference is a lot of those are sign a petition, you know, send this to your congressman, things like that. This is a very easy message because all the filmmakers are asking of us to do is we don't have to go online. We don't have to click any URLs. We don't have to donate money. They just want the audience to make sure that other people go see it so that we can all share the story and all be understanding of what's going on in this world that we have very little knowledge of because we intentionally don't want to look in that that corner, right? Yeah. So I
0: think it is really successful. And I mean, on that note, we can go ahead and kind of spread the message that was also included in the message at the end of the film, which is that if you do go to the Sound of Freedom, you just go to Google, type in the film, find the official website. They do have uh, shareable ticket options, as well Mm -hmm. as I believe, depending on which markets you're in, there are free tickets available. Yeah. So- which is interesting because they really they just want people to see it. They want mm-hmm. the conversation around this, not even the conversation. I think just awareness. Yeah. Like, hey, if we can if we can raise awareness, and I think if the box office profile can get high enough, meaning the movie does make enough money, it's also proof that people care about this issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you can point to that and say like, hey, this is you know this is a yeah. big deal, and it needs it needs backing from you know big money and pol- like political places. Yeah. So that was interesting. It just reminds me a little bit of like, it, it's funny, it's another Jim Caviezel movie, but it like, does it remind you a little bit of like social, uh, uh, not social, uh, Passion of the Christ? Kind of
1: in the same way how there wasn't a lot of marketing behind the film on like billboards
0: and commercials and trailers,
1: but it was totally word of mouth people saying, oh, you should
0: see this movie. Yeah. And I kind of got the sense that if you were like, you know, Christian or Catholic or something and I mean, maybe you know, uh, any other religions, just because it would be an opportunity to, you know, kind of see this story. It, it, I don't know, it was was weird, because I do remember at that time kind of feeling like, you know, I don't want to get into religion here. But like, literally, it felt like there was a little bit of pressure, maybe from certain religions, like if you were part of that religion, it was like, you should probably see it. Mm -hmm. like you should support this movie and you know it's kind of like a must see for christians so like if you haven't like you're missing out like i said i don't think they were getting to levels of like shaming people but it just felt like there was a little (laughs) bit of extra pressure on you to be like you should in you know good you should care about
1: this
0: (laughs) yeah you should go see it and so it's weird because yeah i I feel like this movie that's like the major takeaway that i had was like it's so built around the awareness and whatever you know the the causes associated with the film that it was interesting because yeah it was weird like you know do i think this movie would necessarily be voted you know for like best picture i don't you know like i said i think the subject matter definitely evokes emotion which is good and i thought all the performances were good you know jim caviezel does a great job he's pretty stoic as is it tim ballard i think that was his name i think that was
1: his name yeah
0: yeah timoteo in the movie and the kids performances were stellar i mean the people who were villains you definitely hated them so i feel like you know it was it was well-rounded there was a couple moments of comedy in there that i thought they hit so generally speaking i thought it worked i just i don't know if I you know it's definitely to me it didn't feel like a best picture nominee or anything but you know glad to see it crushing it at the box office which on that note CP if I'm not mistaken it may have been for one day it may have been for one weekend but it did beat Indiana Jones I believe it did for the weekend which blows my mind that is remarkable because you're going up against you know a an established IP and all of the marketing and prowess of Disney and Harrison Ford and everybody associated with that so mm-hmm. yeah pretty insane it also speaks a lot to this movie doing well around Independence Day. I don't know if it's people feeling patriotic or whatever, but it, it worked. You know, it should have been people just being like, "Man, I want to go see Indy kick Nazis' asses." But <laughs> apparently, apparently CP, that's not what has happened. Now, I want to kick this over to you because you actually saw the film. So, I don't want to I don't want to comment too much here, but first of all, tell us your thoughts on the movie. I mean, I'm interested to hear what you actually thought of the film and then maybe why you think its box office performance has been Ooh. less than stellar.
1: Are you sure you want to do this?
0: Yeah, of course. Oh. This is why we're here. All right. Well, I'll, I'll try to keep the spoilers out of this,
1: but um, I'm sure most of you, if you saw on, on Instagram, I posted a pretty scathing review, which normally I walk out of a movie and I'm like, yeah, it's pretty much what you expected. And this one, and I would like to be very clear, I made sure I went in with the lowest of the low of expectations. <laughs> And just so you it's have like an idea that. of how bad it was halfway through the movie, I found myself on my phone shopping Amazon in the movie theater, which, yeah, I was like, wow, this is a bad film. And I think part of it comes down to just a few things. It was abundantly clear that the filmmakers did not understand what an audience wants out of an Indiana Jones movie.
0: Interesting. You would think they'd be right on that.
1: That's that's what I would think. So- there's things in the film that just don't work. The main artifact and kind of the the magical properties around it was outright stupid. Okay. They're, so let's start with the beginning of the film. They're trying to tap into the Indiana Jones that we all know and love. They mm-hmm. give us a de-aged Harrison Ford who is running on a train fighting Nazi. I'm like, okay, okay, this works, right? Like, I mean, you know, the last crusade starts with with Indiana Jones running across a train. We spent two indie movies fighting Nazis. Like, let's let's give it again. This is probably a worthwhile attempt. The problem is the de-aging technology is really bad. And it looks like Harrison Ford is straight out of an Indiana Jones video game.
0: I just can't believe that. Like, and, I think that's crazy, dude. And
1: so we have this youngish Indiana Jones, but his voice is still 80-year-old Harrison Ford, kind of that gruff and raspy and, and not powerful you know, kind of like like uh, so they, Indiana Jones voice that we're using to, of, of the confident, cool, the guy who's always going to beat the Nazi.
0: Dude, they should have just run Indy's voice from like Raiders of the Lost Ark through one of those like AI synthesizers.
1: Like they did on, on Maverick with Val Kilmer's voice, right?
0: Yeah, just like have that come out the other side. I'm sure the AI could do a better job than Harrison Ford of his yes. younger it, self.
1: And it just didn't work. So then when we dive into the movie, Part of it is the fact that Harrison Ford is really, really old, but he doesn't do the Indiana Jones things that we want. He's not running around really punching people. He's not truly getting in the caves, you know, solving the puzzles to collect the artifact. Right? He does a lot of running, which is an 80 year old (laughs) with probably a heart condition. I just didn't buy outright. But on top of it, there's really weird chemistry with the rest of the cast. Most of these characters are not people who, as an audience, we have attachment to. But even as Indiana Jones, it doesn't really seem like he has true attachment to them. Okay. It just doesn't work. And I think the biggest problem that I saw from the film was this I felt like the filmmakers were under the impression that Harrison Ford, how do I want to say this? Let me make sure that I'm phrasing this correctly. I feel like the filmmakers were under the impression that Indiana Jones is Harrison Ford, but really Harrison Ford mm-hmm. plays Indiana Jones.
0: You got to clarify, I'm not 100% so, sure on this. I think that in what who Indiana
1: Jones is, is the fedora and the whip. Okay, He is a character like James Bond, a character like Batman. It doesn't really matter who... As an actor is portraying them we are invested in that character right we want to see indiana jones in his prime the guy who's going to give it all who, who's win it all costs saves the day you know doing the daring brave thing that we all wish that we could do even better mm. set it in kind of this 1920s 30s world okay where he can be an adventurer instead you know indiana jones is not a character like michael corleone from the godfather where al pacino is the embodiment of Al, you know, of of Michael Corleone, and I feel like if they made a new Godfather movie and you know pick some other Italian American actor to play Michael Corleone, we'd be like, man, it's good, but you're not Michael Corleone. Okay. I and think I, get I it I mean, I feel like the, they're in, thinking that Indiana Jones for us has to be Harrison Ford, and I'm like, no, Indiana Jones is someone who's brave and courageous, who doesn't give up, who wears a fedora and uses a whip. He could be anyone. And my point to this would be. We saw River Phoenix play young Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, and most people were very pleased with
0: it. Yeah, yeah I liked it. I it it was didn't great.
1: matter that it was a different actor putting on the mantle of Indiana Jones. Sure, we got Harrison Ford, and he was great. And I'm willing to bet that when they recast him someday, there will be some younger actor who will be like, he's good, but he's not Harrison Ford from the 80s, the guy who is, you know, who gave the quintessential Indiana Jones performance. I feel like. They rested so much on, we need to get one more movie with Harrison Ford. And I think that the approach would have been, let's just make the best indie movie we could.
0: Do you think it would have been better if they put indie kind of in a more mentor role? Like he's in it, but he's not maybe like indie. I mean, I, I on the they flip tried side- tried that in Crystal Skull. Whatever happened to that guy? Worked as good. But, do they say? Oh, they say. Oh, okay. I don't, is it a Spoiler. It's kind of a
1: spoiler. It's not a major spoiler, but they say. But the point is, they tried it. And I think, again, the problem is, you know, you don't want to see... It's kind of the same reason why we don't have a Robin. We don't want to see Robin save the day. We want to see Batman save. Okay.
0: So, yeah, I kind of get what you're saying, though. I mean, I think James Bond and Batman are probably the best examples of, like, we've had multiple variations. They've been recast in many different mediums, many different film franchises. Some are better than others. But Mm -hmm. the idea is, is that, you know, it's the... You know, the cowl and the cape, and it's, you know, tuxedos and martinis, and, yeah. you know, his PP, exactly. Walter PPK. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like James Bond is James Bond, and James Bond will continue on whoever's playing him. Yes. And indie should be approaching that sort of iconography where it's, yes, Harrison Ford may still be the best indie. We'll debate that forever, but, you know, some people will say it's not, it's no debate. But the idea is, is that indie can carry on, and he should carry on in the time that, Indy is the adventurer, because I think, you know, you had kind of mentioned how, you know, like the 1920s, or even if you're, you know, looking at like the era of the Nazis, right? If you go too far forward in time, you start approaching new technology. You start approaching, I mean, essentially you start approaching the mummy, you know, like,
1: <laughs> well, I think a like good a more modern is, day take like, on like indie. Look at, if you compare it to the mummy franchise, right? We had a great mummy movie set in the 1920s and 30s, right? With Brennan Fraser, where he's running around in, in, in you know this era of adventuresome. And we yeah. had a mummy movie with Tom Cruise that takes place in modern day. And one of them sucked. And one of them is amazing. And I think there's a lot to be said about these types of characters can only truly work in a time and place where we give them the tools and the freedom to be those characters, right? We don't see a lot of modern day Westerns. They're rare, But most of the time when we want to make a good Western, we got to set it in the, you know,
0: the West, the old West. Yeah. I mean, maybe Catwoman, but you just don't see a lot of whips in modern (laughs) day, you know, a modern day take on a weapon. It's like, there's just, they're too advanced for the whip, you know? Yeah. So, so, but it works great. It works great back then. I mean, you know, here's the other thing though, when it comes to Indiana Jones, it's interesting because this is not Spielberg and it's not George Lucas. Who was this James Mangold? I think, is the director. So, I mean, he did get high praise from Spielberg after Spielberg saw the film, in which I believe this is not an actual quote, but a paraphrase, but Spielberg said, I thought I was, you know, the only one who could make one of these movies, which is... High yeah, but the problem because...
1: with that is Spielberg is always so nice and supportive of, like, any other. <laughs> you don't ever hear him talking smack on people, right? No, he
0: actually, oh, my bad. He actually uh, will just be quiet. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, he won't give his commentary at all.
1: And so part of the problem is, what's he going to be like? Oh, you know, this guy's freaking terrible. I'm the only one who can make an Indiana Jones movie. No, that's just not Spielberg's character. So, unfortunately, we can't we can't truly, you know holding a, you know, put a lot of esteem behind his praise because, you know, he's just a nice guy.
0: So the two questions I have for you then, I think you answered it, but why do you think they made this movie? And I think your answer was Harrison Ford is like getting too old and we won't be able to do another one if we wait too long. So we should make one mm-hmm. while well, he'll still be in it. He'll still be indie. And two, do you think, I mean, it would have been better if like Spielberg had just finished out. All five.
1: Well, I think there was something unique about the original trilogy in the sense that the style was very, you know, was uniform. The visual style was done all practical effects, right? It was Mm -hmm. Spielberg's directorial style and George, uh, George Lucas's writing style. Which the the fourth one, and now I really want to go back and rewatch it because I wonder if, after seeing the Dial of Destiny, if you know the Crystal Skull is as bad as we remember it now.
0: I don't remember fondly, yeah. You know,
1: looking at it again, maybe you're like, well, we could have gotten worse and now we know what worse looks like. I think that there is something to be said about the Lucas-Spielberg connection. I mean, these are two of the greatest storytellers of all time working on this particular project.
0: And there is something to be said, I think, for that visual style you're talking about. You know, a great example, again, is something like The Godfather. I think Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 are adhering to the same film language, the same style. Uh, And then you go to Godfather 3, and it just feels different. It looks a little different. The way they film it is a little different. It doesn't it feels like that's why everyone always puts the third one like over here. Like it's not inherently like a bad movie, but it doesn't feel like a continuation of the first two. I
1: think you're you hit the n- uh, nail right on the head. It's the film language. When we watch the original Indiana Jones trilogy, there is a visual style that's cohesive. And I think part of what makes The Crystal Skull so sort of offensive to us is that it's it's this very digital CGI heavy movie. And we're like, that's not what Indiana Jones was. Indiana Jones is people hanging from the bottom of trucks, you know, and yeah. pulled down dirt roads and jumping between train cars. That's Indiana Jones. You know, I think we've seen a similar thing with the, with the Star Wars trilogy, then the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy, right? When you start changing what fans are used to expecting out of the franchise, suddenly they're very wary and, and upset and disappointed because This isn't what they're used to.
0: Yeah, I think Star Wars is actually a great example because I think if you go through all three trilogies, so you have the established film language of the original trilogy, you go to the prequels, George Lucas is still using the actual, the same filmmaking language, but he added all this CGI and all this Mm -hmm. stuff on top that adds, it it makes it feel different. And then you go to the sequel trilogy and they're not even actually speaking the film language anymore. Because if you actually watch Star Wars, I mean, George Lucas uses very basic filmmaking techniques, establishing shots. Right. But he doesn't have a ton of camera movement and uh, he saves that for, you know, dogfights in the space and stuff. But, Mm -hmm. you know, generally speaking, like he he's using fairly basic cinematography and then you go to like the sequel trilogy and they're using a lot of sweeping camera movements. They're, you know, tracking, they're doing all these different things that, you know, George Lucas didn't really do. And then it's funny because they want to go back to that kind of almost practical effects, with you know cgi on top of it Mm -hmm. trying to speak that film language and that didn't fully work either because it feels a little out of place you know you're not speaking right exactly what george lucas did and so i don't know it's fascinating but anyway yeah no i mean i think especially with indie you know one of the things that stands out to me is you mentioned right at the top of your review there's a, a a sequence on top of a train but you said it has kind of like a cg feel to it Yep. And it's weird because I think when you're doing practical effects and, and stunts, one of the things that happens is, is when things are fantastical, say Jurassic Park, right? Dinosaurs, yep, yep. you know, there's no dinosaurs today, you know, whatever. We don't know exactly what they looked like when they, you know, ruled the earth and all that. But our, our brains allow For this fantastical to enter the frame and we're wowed by it because it's something we can never see. But when you have a guy on a train or you have a guy hanging, you know, off the back of a truck, we know what that should look like. Yeah. And if CG, the stakes just drop dramatically because we're like, that's just, I mean, it's not real. Yeah, right. Like, it doesn't work. And I think that's one of the reasons why something like, you know, Top Gun Maverick did really well. There's a lot of aerial dogfights and there's a lot of plane sequences in various different movies ranging from war to, you know, uh, just action film. And when you look at Top Gun Maverick, because they they worked so hard on the cinematography to make it really feel like you're in, you know, you're with them on this mission, uh, it feels spectacular. Because yeah. you're like, holy yeah. crap, this is probably what it would be like. Yeah. And... They succeeded, but yeah, if you have any of that CG element for what I would consider to be kind of, you know, something that could happen to any of us realistically, you know, if I had a whip and got pushed off a truck, but I'm hanging on by this whip, I know, I I, I think I know what that would look like, <laughs> you know, and then like you said, I mean, it's almost, it's almost in a weird way, a little bit of a bummer that they're doing, say, a train sequence or an on top of a train sequence when it's like, ah, oh, they've already done that in indie mm-hmm. and now... Mm-hmm you compare the two and you're like they probably did it better back in the 80s yeah right
1: 1989 so, was better than 2023 like yeah you know like
0: <laughs> so I don't know. It's it's interesting. But before we move on to our next topic, which we were kind of already leaning into, but we'll get to it. I wanted to ask you about the status of like Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy. Last week, we talked a little bit about Pixar and the state Mm -hmm. of Pixar. Mm -hmm. Now now we're looking at, you know, uh, a lot of the Star Wars movies haven't maybe they've done well at the box office, but they haven't been received that well by fans. And now you have Indy five coming out. It's underperforming at the box office and also isn't being you know, universally loved by the fans. So it's interesting because, you know, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, I think who is a fantastic producer. uh, She's had a ton of praise. She's worked on some great films and has praise Mm -hmm. from both Spielberg and Lucas. So I have no Mm -hmm. doubt that she's great at her job. I'm just wondering when it comes to this IP, is she, do they need like another creative person, like a buffer? Because it doesn't seem like, you, you, you have like this five star IP, but they're not knocking it out of the park. Something kind of has to change, I think. I don't know if she has to be fired or anything, but, you know, I'm not calling for it. But I mean, I do think well, there's
1: a lot of something's not know, working. speculation on the Internet that she's going to be fired. And a lot of people are calling for her to be fired. I think the problem is this Lucasfilm was originally helmed by George Lucas. George Lucas, whether you like him or not, is a visionary he's been pushing the limits of cinema the ways that we make stories and the types of stories that we tell, right? Like yeah. you can't, like whatever your criticisms are for Lucas, you can't criticize them for being a game changer and a visionary. And the problem is I don't think Kathleen Kennedy is a visionary. She's a successful okay. producer. Know. She yeah. made some great movies. I know she made movies with Steven Spielberg and Her job is to say, Steven Spielberg, you have a vision. I'm going to do everything in my power to get you the people, the tools, the locations that you need to bring your vision to life. And she did it time and time again. But being a good producer is not necessarily the type of creative role that is needed for Lucasfilm. Obviously, you know, she's putting together the budgets and they're building incredible teams to make these movies. The problem is from the visionary standpoint where what's the story? Is there a cohesive vision? Do we have an idea of what we're trying to do with this indie movie? Or are we just making an indie movie to take advantage of existing IP? And I don't think that she can fulfill those roles of the visionary who is understands what they're doing and creating a way to push lucasfilm
0: forward yeah i can see it like i can see where disney would be stepping in and saying hey kathleen kennedy we purchased lucasfilm and we need star wars movies uh we need a new star wars land at our theme parks we want people excited for star wars now get to work and make these movies Mm -hmm. when you look backwards and you look at george lucas right if you actually look what he was doing Look at what he was doing with like the original trilogy and then even the prequel trilogy. I mean, he's deconstructing the hero's journey. He's trying to see if he can create a modern myth and modern motifs he's playing around in this sandbox and, and really seeing if he can kind of deconstruct how all of that works and then rebuild it in his own vision yeah. successfully but the, yeah. it's like the guy's on a mission yep. and he's he's really trying to do something here and i think a lot of times we take that for granted and yeah. it's funny that i guess now this is coming up because you had actually sent me an article about george lucas that i think was titled something along the lines of like we owe george lucas an apology or something <laughs> yeah. i don't yeah. know if you want to just summarize the article but essentially well, they're
1: like he got demonized and 10 years later 20 years later after some of these things that people hated which the author specifically points to the prequel trilogy and you yeah, know not the crystal well skull in indiana time. jones movie he's like you know as we're looking at it again once upon a time we thought george lucas how could you do this you're the absolute worst and then we're seeing what these things look like without george lucas and we're like eh. We could have gotten a lot worse. And in fact, we, did.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. It was, it was, pre- we had it pretty good and we didn't know it. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's crazy too, because like you said, uh, you know, he kind of alludes to the prequel trilogy. And now, I mean, I think the prequel trilogy is not that hated by Star well, Wars. Fans. I think
1: most Star Wars fans now consider Revenge of the Sith to be one of the best Star Wars
0: films. Yeah. Like it's up there. And I think people's memories of it have now that may be a little bit of a nostalgia effect which you know what a powerful drug over time i think people are starting to look back on those and realize the depth that was there and what he was really going for now did lucas knock the prequel trilogy out of the park i think the same way he knocked the original trilogy out of the park probably not there's some cheesy dialogue there's some decisions that were made maybe we'll we'll dive into that on a different episode cp by and large george lucas was trying to do something so i always got to applaud the man for like even the prequel trilogy i'm like he was He had a story he wanted to tell and he did tell it, you know, in retrospect. I mean, it's, it's not bad. No, I definitely agree. I love the prequels.
1: (laughs) I know you do. I have two
0: questions. Yep. One, I gotta, I gotta ask, is the dial of destiny at least cool? No. Oh, so that, I mean, okay.
1: It's, it's like on crystal skull level, which is, you know, part of what I think is cool about the original trilogy is we're going for these actual kind of, uh, you know, objects from lore. And yeah, it's okay. cool seeing Indiana Jones be the guy to get. Them. Now we're kind of going with these other weird, like, pseudo alien. alien technology things that are, you know, just feels like a bit of a stretch.
0: Okay. I exactly. mean, I was hoping maybe at least that was cool. I mean, it's in the title. So, you know, hopefully whatever it is is pretty badass, but oh well. And then, second, if our listeners were had to make the decision, should they go to the theater to see Indiana Jones? So, kind of a two parter. But do you think this is worthy of a theater experience? And would you recommend that people check this out?
1: I would not recommend you check it out, and I would not recommend you waste the money seeing it in the theater.
0: <laughs> Dang, that's that's not good. I mean, if you got that AMC A plus or A, wait, wait, what is it? A list stubs or something?
1: A list. You know, yeah.
0: Maybe if you can go, go check it out. I might, I might go. CP. Well, honestly, I think I might get A-list. I have two AMCs near me. I can go in either direction. Well, north you north should
1: south. do that. We should do an episode about all the movies D-Man's going to go see once he gets his AMC <laughs> I'll go see
0: everything. <laughs> yeah, I'll completely catch up. Well, I want to throw it over to you for our final topic, CP, because it's something that I think we we kind of dove into with Indiana Jones, and here <laughs> they're doing thinking. it right. Yeah, yeah. now here so, they're doing it right. So you take obviously, it
1: Obviously, we got another major blockbuster movie coming out, You know, the day that this podcast drops, the movie will have premiered the night before. And that is, in fact, a new Mission Impossible. Now, what Mission Impossible movies do really, really well is they seem to embrace their stunts, especially the big stunts. And this one, obviously, you know, they have been hyping us up for six months about what this one is going to be. And I'm really psyched to see it actually unfolding on the big screen.
0: Well- The thing about Mission Impossible that's crazy is Tom Cruise is often doing these major stunts himself, Mm -hmm. which in and of itself is pretty crazy because... Uh, I don't know what the insurance is on that but most A-list <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> most A-list movie stars don't do their own stunts for uh, really uh out of an abundance of caution both physical and for the uh you know future of the star. So, you know, it's it says a lot about Tom Cruise that he's willing to actually, you know, take these stunts on and then it also says a lot about stunt artists Yep, Because if you look at some of these, you know, hanging on to the outside of a building or, you know, literally you're hanging on to the side of a plane while it's taking off like that's pretty wild. And in this one, it looks like they're going to Tom Cruise, I guess, is driving a motorcycle literally off a cliff, which we've seen similar things happen. But obviously they not only had stunt doubles, but more than likely there's some CG involved. And, and, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. that's not how it really worked. Mm -hmm. You know, something that comes to mind is like GoldenEye the beginning they like go off but you're like that didn't really happen you know
1: i I think the other thing too is tom cruise doesn't just do the big stunts in the movie he does the small stunts in right there's a reason why every single motorcycle chase movie in a mission impossible movie has tom cruise without a helmet because he wants us to know that he's actually the guy on the motorcycle interesting Uh, there's a great you know behind the scenes clip of i believe it is in the fifth mission impossible when Tom Cruise is doing the stunt of jumping between two buildings and actually busts his ankle. His ankle. Oh, shatters. I remember that. Yeah his ankle hits the wall and shatters and he gets up and keeps running anyway because that's just the kind of guy that he is and so the point is obviously part of i think the adrenaline of these movies is the fact that we are there with the star with ethan hunt through all of these escapades right up close because we don't have to worry about falling back as there is there a stunt man who's stepping in for a particular scene
0: well and one of the things that's really fascinating about the mission impossible franchise is i do feel like they're leaning into with their marketing leading up to each film they are leaning into these stunts and they're using them a little bit as spectacle to pique people's interest in maybe going to see, because I think there is something to be said about the fact that like, if you're in the audience and this is, you know, I love this stunt when he's hanging on the side of the building. I remember my palms sweat, mm-hmm. you know, because you're like, wow, that's, that's great. We, we know right in the audience, we, because they've done such a good job to the lead up, to the film, that this really happened. That this isn't Tom Cruise on a set somewhere and then they just CGI filled in the rest of the frame. (laughs) You're like, he did this and it's terrifying me. And I think that matters. I think when it comes to stunts, like I said, especially when it's a practical thing like that, it really ratchets up the tension when we in the audience either truly believe that this is actually happening or you're like somebody did this. I mean, obviously with safety precautions and stuff, but like someone did it. That's amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So I got to ask you of yes. the I, what I would consider the big four Mission Impossible stunts, which we're going to start with in the fourth one, climbing the Burj Oh right? yeah. In the fifth one, hanging out the side of the airplane. In the sixth one, the skydive sequence, and now in the seventh one, the the motorcycle parachute jump that we have not seen yet, but we've seen it in in the trailers and and the, uh, you know, the video about the making of it. What do you think? Is the most impressive
0: you know the one so okay it's actually the first two that you listed watching tom cruise hang on to the side of a plane while it's taking off like just imagining me like imagining like uh, like let's say the movie studio was like listen you're strapped in and you're not going to fly off this airplane. Like, it's going to be fine. All you got to do is just hang on and, yeah. you know, act your heart out. But if they told me that, they're like, we'll strap you on this plane. You will not fall off. Even if you do, you got a parachute. Like, you're safe. I still would not do it. That's crazy.
1: I do think it's funny. I remember in him talking about that when he's like, yeah, I didn't sleep the night before that.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's like, like a could you? crazy, crazy stunt. So, I mean, I think that might have to be number one. But I do remember being blown away by the stunt. When he climbs the building, just realizing like how high it is. And like I said, I remember it literally like made my palms sweat in the theater. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening. It's a Mm -hmm. movie. I've seen people do all kinds of things and my palms don't sweat. But I was like, I know Tom Cruise. They went out there and did this. Like, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So, but all the stunts have looked amazing. Even the skydiving. I mean, I can say personally, I've been skydiving. So like I've been there.
1: But well, the skydiving one blows me away because in the in the uh, in the special features about it, first of all, they had to do that jump about 200 times to oh get it God. right. What what I find the most insane is the cinematographer is skydiving backwards. Right, he jumps out of the plane backwards, and that's amazing. Him that and Tom amazing. Cruise had to time their themselves so he's like, okay, it's going to be three steps, and I fall back, and then you run after me. And then it was something like, while the cinematographer was falling, Tom Cruise was supposed to get like a little bit of distance. And then in three seconds, he was supposed to go from like Like, 25 feet away to soar up and stop just three feet short of him, you know, and this is, you know, 5,000 feet above the earth. And I'm like, the amount of precision that it took to perfect these things just blows my mind. Like. These Mission Impossible movies, when I look at the budget on them, I'm like, I totally get it, you know, what you guys had to do to deliver, you know, a minute and a half worth of action. You know, it took you six months and it paid off. It's
0: incredible. Yeah. I was going to say, can I just say that, like, I appreciate it. I find it, I'm not going to lie. I don't know how much it costs, how much extra it costs versus just doing a CD, CG version. Like, you know, you look at like the Fast and the Furious films or even what was the one with Tom Holland, uh, where he was like the adventure video game. Like he's like falling out of a plane, but you're like, I mean, they didn't do that, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Like
0: they didn't do it. So I don't know. That just blows my mind. And I, I just, I I don't know. I want to say on this show, like Tom Cruise, I appreciate (laughs) you, man. That's pretty cool. Like the lanes you'll go to, to entertain, but I'm like, it, it is like inherently more entertaining. Yeah. Right. It just is like to know that they did it. You're like, it makes the whole thing feel like a much bigger spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I agree. I just wanted to say, I was just kidding. Everything that happened in Fast and the Furious, they really did that. (laughs) So Uh, yeah, Vin Diesel, you're the man.
1: But yeah, um, and based off of early audience reviews, apparently, you know, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is supposed to be incredible. I think probably the worst part about it is that it sounds like the only Mission Impossible movie we're getting about after this is Dead Reckoning Part 2. And then my understanding is Tom Cruise is like, i'm done which i can't really think he will be because he's been doing these movies for like 30 years now but if
0: he is would it is be a, it, such a shame it does remind me of like fast and the furious in that regard where like if you go back to the original one it's so different in tone and style than yeah. like yeah. the new ones yeah like i mean you look at fast and the furious it's like about drag or street racing yeah like yeah yeah. la culture and all this stuff and the new ones they're like globe trotting you know action space. heroes. yeah <laughs> Like, they're everywhere. Yeah, you're like, this is crazy, you know. kind of has that feel where it's like this franchise, I think it was right around the fourth movie, is that correct? Where it kind of, like, took on a different direction.
1: The fourth, or I, I think the fifth one is really where it's like, because that's when they go to Brazil.
0: Yeah, one of them in there, yeah, they, like, totally change. Like, he gets this new team around him and, like, all mm-hmm. this stuff, and then they, like, now it's, it's in its current form. CP, I didn't hear you answer. Of those four, which one is your favorite? Ooh.
1: Um... As I said, I think I have the most appreciation for the skydiving one after learning everything that was involved in getting it, but I still think the creme de la creme of all movie stunts is hanging outside of an airplane because That's yeah, it's pretty
0: gnarly. I mean, like
1: I'm with you. I would not do that for any amount of money.
0: Yeah, I'm like I don't know if I'd skydive 200 times, but I have done it once. Yeah. So like, you know, I don't know. I guess I would. You know, I I, don't, I wouldn't hang out of that building either though. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> right. But yeah, I think yeah, I think the plane one it's probably my favorite. That or the building. Those, those two are just incredible. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. And it's actually one of those things that's a little bit of a letdown when, you know, in the same episode, we're talking about Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible. And I feel like Indiana Jones, obviously not with 80 year old indie, but if you're going to do an indie film, it, it stunts should be a part of it. Mm-hmm. They should nice. be doing some cool set pieces, some really cool stuff. It's like they're they're going a different way now. They're they're not embracing that as much anymore. Yeah, it's just a shame. So, but that's okay. Cause we got mission impossible. Yeah. So audience, if you're going
1: to, you know, let us know if you're planning to check out mission impossible, or actually by the time this episode's dropped, if you have seen mission impossible, because obviously I'll post my review and I'm sure Dean will share his thoughts too.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if I get that a list for AMC, I might go see all these movies. <laughs> Just take a day at the movies. I don't know. Watch, go watch three of them. And then I'll do that on a Saturday and then come back on Sunday. When the week reboots, <laughs> you should do that. Yeah. <laughs> Go see like six movies in a weekend. That'd be awesome. (laughs) Well, listeners, everybody tuning in. Thank you so much for uh, checking out the podcast. We really appreciate it and hope you enjoyed the show. You can follow everything for the podcast at filmmakerscompass.com. And we are now on threads, as I mentioned at the top of the show. So no posts yet, but we'll be on there soon and hopefully engaging with all of you. So look forward to that. You can find on filmmakerscompass.com a feed of all the previous episodes, as well as all of our social media links, which are at podcast or pod. So you can follow me at Big Kid D-Man and CP.
1: You can follow me at ND Cal 5. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. We will see you back here next week. Until then, keep watching movies.